This episode of See Here is dedicated to all the frontline workers and responders around the world at this time of crisis. We really, truly appreciate all your efforts and the sacrifice that you're making and the danger that you're putting yourselves in. I say, everybody, give a hand to your local hospitals, police force, fire department, and everybody that's doing what they can. Cheers from See Here. Episode 72 of C here. I've been wanting to say that for the last four months. Yes, we've been out of action for the last four months. And what happens when we say, oh, we need a bit of a break? Well, Australia goes on fire and the world gets diseased. What the hell, world? Can't we take a little bit of time off without you getting into trouble? Well, we're back here to save you. We're here to give you some music film talk. It's what you need. It's what you want. What the world needs now is C here, sweet C here. We're here to put the pudding back in your ears. On the Skypes, I have in Brantford, Mr. Tim Merrill. Here I am, locked down in the den. And flipping his wig over in Bath is Mr. Bernard Stickwell. Yep, hello. I haven't left the house in, seems like, months. I don't think I've left the house since we recorded last, actually. I don't know what that says about me. I'll just go and look out the window again. We're back, and we're so glad to be talking into your ear holes. A lot has changed in the world, as I've said, but we're not here to talk anymore about that. We're here to talk about music-related films, because that's what we did, it's what we do, and it's what we're going to continue to do for a long time. We're going to have some pretty good news at the end of this show for future episodes, but more of that later on. So what are we here to put in your ear holes? We're here to talk about Hedwig and the angry inch we're going to make you flip your wig let's listen to the trailer first ladies and gentlemen whether you like it or not Ow! don't you know me kansas city i'm the new berlin wall try and turn me down how did some slip of a girly boy become the internationally ignored song stylist barely standing before you damn i can't believe you're not a girl Looks like we got some sugar daddies in the house. You could give me a cavity, honey. Now you're interested, huh? Inch, not itch. Intrigued. It is clear that I must find my other half. But is it a he or a she? Can two people actually become one? One day, in the late mid-80s, I was in my early, late 20s. I never knew that woman before that night, and I never knew she wasn't a woman. I've got a sweet tooth. Songs exploded out of us. We were outgrossing monster trucks in Wichita. When it comes to huge openings, a lot of people think of me. I had tried singing once, and they threw tomatoes. So after the show, I had a nice salad. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, both of you. Did you put a bra in a dryer? Yeah. How many times do I have to tell you? You don't put a 
Okay, everybody. And the angry lips. When I think about all the people I have come upon in my travels, I have to think about the people who have come upon me. <laughs> and we're back from trailer listening. Morris here, Bernie over there, Tim somewhere else over there. We're going to be talking about Hedwig and the Angry Inch. film came out in 2001, directed by John Cameron Mitchell. It stars John Cameron Mitchell, Miriam Shaw, and Michael Pitt. It was written by John Cameron Mitchell, the book and the screenplay, and Stephen Trask, who wrote the songs in the film. I don't even know if I should read the IMDb. All right, I'll read the IMDb. It's pretty awful. A transgender punk rock girl from East Berlin tours the US with her band as she tells her life story and follows her former life. Lover, bandmate who stole her songs. That's a pretty crap description of the film, but we'll try and do a little bit mm-hmm. better as we go on. So, Tim, you're going to describe what you think about the film in one word. Well, balance is basically what it is. But before we get to that, I don't mean to generalize, but as a whole, I'm not really a fan of musicals because there always seems to be one or two songs in a musical that just seem like they don't belong. They just stand out like a fart in church. You know, you get like three or four great songs in a musical, and then there's that one song that just pisses all over it. It just ruins it. And then you get Hedwig and the Angry Inch, where this film, every single song in this film is fantastic. Don't you know me, Kansas City? I'm the new Berlin Wall. Try and turn me down. I was born on the other side. Of a town rich in two I made it over the great divide Well now I'm coming for you Here's another thing that I didn't necessarily like about musicals. A lot of times, the music in musicals, they over-try. They just try to shoehorn it in. It just rings so false. John Cameron Mitchell and what he's done with this film and writing it and his music writer, the songwriter, has just pulled off this effortless act in the whole film. Every song is vital. Every song is a sing-along. Every song is amazing. And the band, the whole package, it just pulls you in. Even if you've never seen this film, you could have listened to the soundtrack before and you might listen to the soundtrack after. But that's what really pulled me in to Hedwig and the Angry Inch. I had friends of mine who had seen it on the festival circuit when it first came out, and they said, man, when this thing hits, it's going to be a cult classic. And it might not have reached the levels of Rocky Horror or anything that we know as standard cult classic fare, but I honestly believe that Hedwig and the Angry Inch deserves its place at the Pantheon level of cult film. It's a concert experience. It's a cinematic experience. It's something that everybody can relate to as well, despite it being an LGBT film. To be free, one must give up a little part 
part of oneself. And I'm going to echo a lot of what Tim said. In my head, for some reason, I've always kind of mushed this up with Velvet Goldmine. And what's the other right. one? Is it Brothers of the Head or something like that? They were three films that were, in my mind at least, they were all set or about that same kind of period of sort of 70s kind of New York Dolls, glam rock, that kind of vibe. I mean, for whatever reason, that wasn't a particular reason why, you know, it's not like I avoided the film or anything. I just never gotten around to it. And more certainly the soundtrack and the look and feel of the film is very much of that ilk. This was contemporary to when it was made. So uh, I would assume 2001. As to what Tim was saying about the songs, they're fantastic. They really are amazing. What's really interesting is how they are trying to be of that sort of glam rock style to the extent that some of them are almost kind of plagiarizing certain songs. You know, there's one song which has got a little keyboard piano riff in it, which is, you know, Perfect Day, the Lou Reed song. But despite that, and possibly even because of that, they work so much the better. And the lyrical content as well of, of the songs, again, sort of echoing what Tim was saying, it's almost like if you had the album, you can treat it as a concept album almost. You can follow the story yeah. through the songs and the visuals. I mean, obviously, it was a stage play originally. What John Cameron Mitchell does so well in the film, and I mean, as a co-writer and director, just the whole aesthetic of the film, the way it looks, the art direction, the costume, it just adds more layers to the story. You start with the concept album and then he adds all these other layers on top. Mm -hmm. And visually, it looks great. There's lots of little camera tricks and techniques he uses, just little almost throwaway things, which are just fucking brilliant. Pardon my French. Mm -hmm. I was absolutely blown away by it. I, I think it's tremendous. And I will go as far to say I think it's way better than a Rocky Horror Picture Show. I didn't make him for you! As far as cult musicals go, this is number one with a bullet, frankly. I had recently returned to my first love of music. I had tried singing once back in Berlin. They threw tomatoes after the show. I had a nice salad. I wanted to sort of like give a little bit of a history behind this. I did a lot of reading and I think that getting an appreciation of where the show originally came from will go some way to explaining just why the film is so good and why John Cameron Mitchell is so perfect in the part because he was so intimately acquainted with his character. The story goes that I think it was 1989, John Cameron Mitchell and Stephen Trask were sitting next to each other on a plane and just started up a conversation based on their music mutual admiration for the director Rainer Werner Fassbinder. Right. I've only actually just sort of watched my first Fassbinder film maybe in the last week or two, Ali Fear Eats a Soul, which was wonderful, but that's a separate conversation. So, Tremendous film, yeah, great. So they started a friendship and after several years of talking back and forth, John Cameron Mitchell told Stephen Trask stories from his life and somehow that inspired Stephen to write the song Origin of Love. When the earth was still flat Clouds made of fire and mountains stretched up to the sky, sometimes higher. Folks roam the earth like big rolling kegs. They had two sets of arms, they had two sets of legs, they had two faces peering out of one giant head so they could watch all around. Talked while they read 
Stephen was working as a musical director at a New York City punk drag nightclub called Squeezebox and it was a venue for drag queens to go get up and actually sing in. No lip syncing. John Cameron Mitchell had already been thinking about his character of Hedwig and used the opportunity to sing there, workshop the character. So he'd really immerse himself by every week cover songs by Fleetwood Mac, David Bowie and Yoko Ono. And the only original song on the night was The Origin of Love. So he kept developing this as a cabaret piece and moved over to another theatre in New York City called Westbeth, which was part of a not-for-profit organisation on the west side of Manhattan. And it kept developing, but he would always finish off with Hedwig singing You Light Up My Life. It was a small production with not much word of mouth to get an audience, but Stephen kept writing songs. And by the time they moved it to a more commercial, non-workshop venue, which was called the Jane Street Theatre, the finale of Midnight Radio was written, which had to be written to replace You Light Up My Life, because being in a commercial venue, they couldn't afford the rights to keep doing that song. By the time they moved there, they were getting people like David Bowie and Barry Manilow and Lou Reed coming out to see the show and spreading the word about it. Then they get people like Mike Nichols and Robert Altman coming to see the show. In fact, I think John Cameron Mitchell said in an interview that I read with Rolling Stone that there were some mothers from New Jersey who were seeing the show 500 times. And this is while it was still as a band and one man cabaret piece. So we're not even talking about like the Broadway show which it developed into later on. Right, right. Next thing we know, Hollywood comes calling because of all the word that the big stars are going to see the cabaret piece and they went with New Line Cinema and John Cameron Mitchell was quoted as saying that he wanted to develop the film to look like the work of his heroes, Robert Altman, Bob Fosse and Hal Ashby. There's a lot about this film that looks like a Bob Fosse film to Oh, absolutely. It looks like a theatre production without looking like a theatre production. It's a film, but you know that it's a theatre production. It has that feel as well. Now, there's something I want to go back to that's kind of ironic. We haven't touched on Tommy Gnosis yet, but there is a weird little meta Tommy Gnosis thing with what you just said about New York City and the drag cabaret. One of the most premier drag performers in New York in the 70s and into the 80s was a character known as Wayne County. And if you know about Wayne County and the Electric Chairs, they were a raunchy punk band that were fronted by a transgendered man. He had a sex change operation, became a woman, started as Wayne County, became Jane County. He, he was from the southern United States. But when you see the character of Wayne County, Jane County, it's very similar to Hedwig. I'm sure John Cameron Mitchell and Stephen Trask, they were both well aware of Wayne oh, Street yeah. and Jay County. They must have been, yeah, yeah. Oh, they had to have yeah. been, man. And I wasn't trying to judge the film because I fucking love this film. But when I first saw it initially, like years ago, when this first came out, I went, holy shit, that's Wayne County. I just couldn't help it. The Wayne County story. Right, pretty yeah. much. Here's the thing I want to get into. When we started this episode and I said, okay, one word to describe this film, and I talked about balance. This is what I mean by balance, okay? One of the main concepts of this film is separation. And this idea that you're either on one side of a barrier or the other, or the idea that, you know, you have to be one or the other, that duality is kind of frowned upon. The binary concept is kind of the bone of contention. You either have to be on one side or you're struggling to get on the other with the Berlin Wall Mm -hmm. and the whole point of Hedwig trying to 
define who he is. It started as a boy, becomes a girl, and who is he? And I think the whole point of this film is that there's no left or right. There's a gray area, and that's where everybody belongs, because we are all elements of both sides, if there are sides. I think the the film is her journey to realizing that, isn't it? At the end, he's a boy and he's a girl, and he's right. kind of he's both, but he's neither at the same time. You know? But but he's satisfied with that. He's he's, he's, he's found himself. himself. Exactly. He's himself. Yeah. 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 But it's not just Hedwig. It's also his partner in the film. Yitzhak is the same thing. Where she doesn't want to be with Hedwig, but at the same time, she can't be separated from him. There's conditions at the beginning of the film where they talk about, well, you're not anything unless you're American. And if you're American, then you have to lose your genitals because you have to go with the sky because that's the conditions of the deal. And then when she goes over there and she wants to basically say, I want to be famous. And then it's like, well, you can't be famous unless you're hetero, like Tommy Gnosis, you know, and it's like, we love your songs, but we just can't take it the way you are. So there's all these conditions put on things. And then it gets to a point where it's like, there's no conditions. It's just the way it is. And I think that's the message that John Cameron was trying to put out there. It's very prescient as well, the whole kind of LGBTQT thing. And I don't want to diminish it by saying that, but, right. you know, gender. Is, yeah. It's become, like you're saying, it's not binary anymore. And um, hopefully they're a lot more willing to accept that. And people are uh, sort of, again, I don't know if it's the right term to use, but kind of coming out and being less afraid of being who they are and not what they're being defined as by traditional society. This is giving that message like 20 years ago. There's a part of the musical where the, one of the first songs in the film where Hedwig's talking about the wall came down but now I'm the wall you can't tear me down but then I think as the film progresses even Hedwig realizes there's no wall there's no barrier it's just it is what it is but Hedwig in a way is a little bit like the Bob Geldof character in Pink Floyd the Wall fuck you Roger Waters he puts up his own Berlin Wall so right. no one can right. get to him and what I was going to say you mentioned Yitzhak before and I think the one weakness of the film to me and I believe this might have been expanded on in the stage show I haven't seen like a video of the stage show is we get a little bit more of Yitzhak's background and to work out exactly why their Hedwig, sort of relationship and their sort of power dynamic in the relationship right luther broke hedwig's heart and then tommy broke hedwig's heart so he thinks right well that's it i'm building a wall around me i'm not going to allow anyone in so you can infer from that okay yeah i'm going to break Yitzhak's heart but I would have liked to have seen a little bit more I think you know Yitzhak had the potential to be a really yeah. central character and wasn't I think you're correct Morris I think in the actual stage play there is more or the stage version I should say there is more of her and her background so it seems like that you know they've taken that out of the film and she is a little bit more of a background character and I don't quite right. think you get the uh that sort of throws some um, some light on more on Hedwig's character and her character. It brings in an alternate perspective on Hedwig too, because Yitzhak sees Hedwig as being so brave 
and wishes that she could be like Hedwig because when she's like, there's a scene where she's in the hotel room and she wants, she puts Hedwig's wig on. Yeah. And then there's the scene where she's riding on top of the crowd. And I think that Hedwig beats herself down when she's riding on top of the crowd. I mean, that is her, isn't it? At the end. Right. And like Hedwig is finally accepting of himself in doing that. He kind of frees her up to be who she is. Exactly. But what I'm saying is that in some ways, Hedwig is so bitter because she's so self-defeating thinking I'm not male I'm not female I'm just this thing and yet she still continues to go on and the Yitzhak sees that as an inspiration to kind of say well wow despite being the angry inch you can still throw yourself forward and say I'm me and that's mm-hmm. what you know Yitzhak doesn't have the uh, confidence to do that and I think that's what Yitzhak is trying to do I was going to say, I think from what I've read about the kind of stuff that was excised from the film with uh, Yitzhak is it's more about Hedwig keeping her down. It's a power dynamic that's going on there that's more about his issues than it is hers. At least that's the impression I get from what I've read, but you know, I haven't seen the stage show, I don't know. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, both of you. That song was... By Mr. Kurt Cobain. Now that kid's got a future, huh? I wanted to bring something else up because we're talking about the wig as a form of identity. We see earlier on, you just mentioned, Bernie, about Yitzhak in that scene after the opening song. We see him fondling the wig. He really wants that wig. That wig is one of many that is Hedwig's identity. One of the great songs, and we'll talk a bit more about the songs as we go, but one of the centerpieces of the film is the song Wig in a Box. Put on some makeup. Suddenly I'm Miss Midwest Midnight Checkout Queen Until I head home and I put myself to bed Where Hedwig sings, I put on some makeup and some Laverne Baker and pull the wig down from the shelf. Suddenly I'm Miss Beehive 1963 until I wake up and turn back to myself. That wig is her identity. One of the themes that drove home the themes of identity in Hedwig came from an unlikely source for me, and that was watching the Jean-Paul Melville film Le Circle Rouge a couple of weeks ago. And that film also coupled with my memories of Le Samurai were the fact that we see all the hitmen, the bad guys in that film, they're all wearing the black trench coat and they're putting on their hat when they're ready to do something. None of the other characters have that. Their identity is in the trench coat and in the pork pie hat. And it got me to thinking, wow, that identity, who they are, is wrapped up in that article of clothing or in that hat. You can right. think of any number of films. Winslow Leach in The Phantom of the Paradise. You know, once he puts on that mask and that cape, right. he becomes right. a badass. He's no longer the put-upon character Winslow Leach. He's the Phantom. A couple of days ago, I was listening to our friend Scott Phipps over at Real Britannia. They were talking about one of my favorite British films from the 60s with Tony Hancock called The Rebel or Call Me Genius, depending on which side of the planet you're on. The Tony Hancock character, he becomes this artist. He's been this nine to five guy. Everyone wears the same suit 
and they wear the same ties and then he decides he doesn't want to be that nine to five corporate guy anymore he wants to be his inner artist so he puts on the beret and he puts on his artist smock and all of a sudden he's an artist the clothes define who he is so that's a rather long way but it's saying but there's this history in cinema and I'm sure you could think of a thousand other films where the article of clothing defines who the character is let me take it one step further though there's a conflict in this because of the identity it's about what Hedwig is lacking which is his schmeckle oh my I mean it's the whole thing about you know having that angry inch where you're not one or the other so what am I it's the lack of identity it's about finding the identity despite the lack of identity and I think that's a big part of that as well it adds to what you're saying about the wig that's what I was talking about going back to balance where despite being either the A or B or having B or despite not having A or having A and despite not having B you're still you when everything is all said and done you can't chalk it up to variables it's just what's left at the end the purity and I think that's what's really interesting to me about it the beginning of this film the first song is the story of love where they talk about that every being had the two sides and how the gods severed the beings into one or the other causes polarity the irony is is that the film begins with this whole mythology and saying well this is the way it is but then when you get to the end of the film you realize no it's all bullshit there's a middle ground we're, we're all things we've always been all things and that you know it's not one side or the other to me it goes back to like that devo song about freedom of choice about the dog that chases his tail until he dies we get into this whole conflict of chasing parameters of who we are or what we should be or what we're not. That's the beauty, the true beauty of this film is that you go through all of it with, with Hedwig with his conflicts with himself and what he lost or what he wants and, and who screwed him and who hasn't. And then you get to the end and he just says, I'm still me. And that's the most important thing of it all. Well, there's that great moment in the film, like where he's singing Angry Inch, where he says, Yeah, long story short, when I woke up from the operation, I was bleeding down there. I was bleeding from a gash between my legs. It's my first day as a woman. Already it's that time of the month. But two days later, the hole closed up. The wound healed and I was left. With a one-inch mound of flesh When my penis used to be Well, my vagina never was It was a one-inch mound of flesh We place so much emphasis on who we are whether we're manly whether we're feminine on whether we have a dick or we don't have a dick and that's right. what he's spending the whole film looking for that sort of really aligns with what you're saying absolutely it's, it's, it's the balance it's okay. coming to the point of realizing the balance of who you are despite what you don't have and recognizing what you do have because Hedwig feels that Hedwig can't be Hedwig without the wig and Hedwig can't be Hedwig Without the vagina or without the genitals or the Barbie doll crotch, you know, stuck with the Barbie doll crotch. But in the end, Hedwig realizes that Hedwig is Hedwig because of the soul. I don't know if at the end she is Hedwig anymore. I think Hedwig is like the, you know, the female side of the character. And I think she's the male side of the character, isn't he? And at the end, she kind of realizes this and 
She takes the, the wig off. She passes it on. The, she gets rid of the whole costume. She's realised that Tommy Gnosis and Hedwig are two sides of the same coin, and she accepts that and integrates right. that. And exactly. But that's kind yeah, of like yeah. what I was saying about at the beginning of the film, they established this whole mythology about the division of male and female. And in the beginning, when everything was great, there was just the one with the two heads and the, the forearms and the four legs and all of that. But then in the end, it kind of goes full circle where Hedwig's trying to sing about something in the beginning, saying this is the way it is. And then in the end, she's like, well, no, I'm not left. I'm not right. I'm not binary. I'm M. I'm not sure that I quite necessarily agree, Bernie, that the character is no longer Hedwig. But I think it's Hedwig and Hansel have gone and reconciled with each other. Perhaps, yeah, yeah. I guess at that point, she's Hedwig and Hansel, I suppose. I got the part. I'm playing the role of Angel in Broadway Cruise's Polynesian Tour of Rent, so fuck you too, Miss Hedwig. I'm going to be a star. Big star. There's nothing you can do about it. Do you guys remember in the 70s when they had that film with Sally Field in the book that came out about Sybil? Yes, I remember that, yeah. Okay, with Sybil with the multiple personalities. Well, I can understand that people can say this This is a mental illness when certain personalities come out and they kind of remain until there's erratic differences in personality. I get that. But if you really think about it, we have aspects of different personalities in all of us. There's the Hedwig aspect to Hansel. There's the Tommy aspect to Hansel. There's the Itzhak aspect to Hansel. Like, I mean, all of us are made up of a variation of personalities. It's just a matter of when you let it out. It's that moment where Luther leaves Hedwig in a trailer out in the middle of nowhere in America. And then Hedwig also realizes that the Berlin Wall has been torn down. She's over there for no reason. Thinks, right, well, I have to reinvent who I'm going to be. This side of me, please, no one. I'm not happy with myself. I'm going to reinvent this person so no one will ever hurt me again. That's when I think the outrageous, the glam rock side of Hedwig comes out. When Hedwig is in that trailer, when Luther leaves him, we don't really know because we don't see that thing in the film, but I imagine that there's not that side to Hedwig yet. If I'm going to depend on me, I have to develop that side of me. It's almost like the stage show never comes off the stage. When you sort of think about all these characters that we know of through rock music, you know, like Ziggy Stardust or Quaalude, Fee Weibel's character in the tube. Right, right. These outrageous characters, once they're off the stage, they're David Bowie, they're Fee Weibel. But, but Hedwig never changes. It's all about challenge. Hedwig thinks, okay, if I get to this point, that's who I am, I've succeeded. And then Luther screws her. He, he walks away. So she's like, okay, then I have to redefine myself. That's a challenge. And then Tommy takes off, and then that's a challenge again. She has to redefine herself. You try to base who you are on variables that constantly change. And then it's a challenge, playing bloody seafood restaurants. Thank you. My name is Hedvig. Please welcome those ambassadors of Eastern Block Rock, the Agrients. Here they are, ladies and my man Friday... Through Thursday. Yeah. Yitzhak, ladies and gentlemen. There's no need. There's none. Also very talented and so very lucky to be here. Right, boys? Yes, yes Mrs. Hedwig. Look out, guys. Immigration! 
And yet, like you're saying, Hedwig remains Hedwig. If you'll excuse the expression, I think it took balls on Hedwig's part to play those seafood restaurants as if they're big stadiums, they're big arenas. You know, she takes right. no prisoners. There's that moment in one of the songs where there's abuse yelled at her by some redneck from the audience and Hedwig and the band just basically give them the fuck you and yeah. start an incredible fight. That's awesome. If you guys had to choose one song or two stretching it, what would you say are your favorite songs in the film? I think Wig in the Box, is it? Or Wig Out of the Box? Wig in the Box. Yeah. Wig in the Box. box. And I think the Midnight Radio, the one right at the end. cigarette paper between them because they're all so fantastically good absolutely of course like Bernie says, I love every one of these songs, but I think the song that, and I've been listening to the soundtrack a lot over the last few months, the song which actually in itself is in two versions is Wicked Little Town. And hurricanes and rain, black and cloudy skies. I've played that one over and over and over again, and I've listened to the soundtrack lots, but that one seems to be the one that I keep coming back to because we get a Hedwig version, we get a Tommy Noses version. The Hedwig version is very, very fragile. I've read some stuff into it. There's biblical themes that are running throughout the film. I mean, Tommy Gnosis originally grew up in this Christian family, and he goes and says, wow, it's just like the story of Adam and Eve, how God goes and takes the ribs out of Adam to make someone else. There's also this line which could be like a, a throwaway line in the song. Then you're someone you're not in Junction City at the spot. Remember Mrs. Lot and when she turned around. The whole notion in that song is about you know Mrs. Lot looked back and that was it. She turned into a pillar of salt. Hedwig is singing, don't look back, look forward on your life. Don't think about what's happened. I'm not I shouldn't be worrying about my schmeckle as you put it, worrying about that being who I was. I should only look forward and think about who I am, of course. He doesn't always right. subscribe to that notion. She knows that I shouldn't be looking back, but in a way she always is. That's what that song represents to me. That's the whole thing I'm talking about, about the conflict of balance. You're you're always led to believe you have to be one side or the other this whole binary construct and eventually you have to say leave it alone I, I am who I am that's it for me the two songs that I really love in this film is uh, Sugar Daddy I've got a sweet tooth licorice drops and jelly rolls hey sugar daddy Hansel needs some sugar in his bowl I'll lay out fine shine on the linen and polish up the chrome. If you've got some sugar for me, sugar daddy, bring it home. 
I love that bit in the film. When you see it, you'll know where she says, look, ladies and gentlemen, a car wash. Like, I, I just love that, you know, when she's like, with the tassels over the guys. I love Gloria Love. It sums up so much in the film, where they just try to create this mythology about the division and the things, the, the principles, or how people are led to believe stories, or the way things, quote-unquote, should be. I think that this film really, like Bernie says, you know, it's a gold standard for cult films. And not only because the music's so damn catchy, but I think that it forces you to examine people going through polarities. It's like, well, you're not quite this, you're not quite that. Well, how are you defined? I'm defined by who I am. This film speaks loud and clear. There's no freaks. We're all freaks. I think that John Cameron Mitchell, he's very wise in the sense that I think that he allows himself to laugh at himself. I was going to say, I think it's interesting as well. You talk about how John Cameron Mitchell is kind of clever in that he's able to laugh at himself or Hedwig's the humour is there, as it were. I think it's interesting as well that Hedwig is not always particularly nice. Mm. No, She does some no. really shitty, unpleasant things. And again, it, oh, yeah. you know, the, the theme of duality throughout the film, again, mm. it just shows that we're not all black and white you know there's good in no. us but it's bad in no. us there's spite and anger there with her as well you know no there's a point where Andrea Martin says to her I don't think you need my help anymore yeah but the, well, that whole scene the way that Hedwig reacts to Max Mutes there is just absolutely awful fearing and unpleasant and yet the brilliance of John Cameron Mitchell and I think this comes back to my earlier point when I was talking about the history I wanted to bring the history up in how that was so important in how great the film is he was allowed to develop the character over several years in a cabaret style with a live audience and work out what worked and what didn't work Cameron Mitchell realises just what you said earlier on is that we're not one person we're not all wearing the black hat and we're not all wearing the white hat he's a character who we feel a lot of sympathy for maybe even a lot of empathy for and yet he treats his audience with disdain he treats Yitzhak with disdain uh he treats his band with disdain there's that moment in the laundrette this band which plays as if they're in stadiums and yet they end up playing in these seafood restaurants and they're all got laundrette afternoon where Hedwig says to his band did you put a bra in a dryer. Yes. How many times do I have to tell you? You don't put a bra in a dryer. It warps. Treats everyone like shit. And yet by the end of it, we don't think, geez, you're a bastard. We feel a lot of sympathy for him. Hedwig can be a prick. And yet Hedwig can be but someone that we feel a lot of sympathy and empathy for. If you had ever died or any of us had died and someone was doing a retrospective of your life, and they're just showing all the sweet bits. You couldn't lie to yourself. You would say, well, yeah, but I was a bit of a bastard, too. You know, like I was a bit of a prick, too. This film is warts and all. And I think that you have to show that. You have to show all aspects. If Hedwig just comes off as this sympathetic surgery disaster, then you would just say, okay, well, that's only one side of it. But, you know, again, John Cameron Mitchell is smart enough to show, you know, Hedwig as an asshole, Hedwig as self-loathing, Hedwig as being able to take the piss with himself, and Hedwig as having hope. So there's all elements in this film, and I think that's what makes it even more stronger. A few weeks ago, I was visiting my mum, and we had the television on. They were showing My Fair Lady, and there was a line in My Fair Lady, or you know, Pygmalion, if you will, 
where Rex Harrison says, like after I think they'd taken Eliza Doolittle to the ball and she fooled them all and it was a big success. Rex Harrison says to Colonel Pickering, it's just marvellous. Don't you understand that I've been able to take this person and create something completely different out of them? And then I thought to myself, oh my goodness, I've watched My Fair Lady more times than I can care to recall. And I've only just realized that My Fair Lady is a family-friendly musical version retelling of Frankenstein. And then I thought thought about it even more and thought there's aspects of My Fair Lady in Hedwig and the Angry Inch. That's why I think it would be an absolutely terrific double bill. We've taken this one person, Hansel, and not so much the doctor who botched the operation, but Hedwig or Hansel himself, herself, creating a new character from that. And I think in one of the songs, there's that line, I rose like Lazarus off the slab. Right. Once again, Frankenstein's monster. So I love how they've taken inspiration from books like Frankenstein and stories like Pygmalion and My Fair Lady. Right. They all right. are connected, but they all tell their stories in a different way. And I just, right. I just, I have no idea whether John Cameron Mitchell ever sort of used that My Fair Lady as a reference point, but I like to think that he did. You're talking about double bills. Like I, I, I think another film that would really be amazing double bill with this would be Woody Allen's Zelda because the idea of just trying to constantly pursue an identity that's not yours. Actually, the more I think about it, Hedwig is the greatest film that kind of surmises adolescence because adolescence is all about trying to find out who you are. And adolescence is all about, you know, you associate as a metalhead or a goth or a punk or whatever, or maybe none of the above. But then other people will say that you're still lacking something because you're not me. And it's all about that idea that eventually you reach the point of adulthood where you say, well, look, I'm all of these things and more. I don't have to be one specific thing to find out who I am. It's the pursuit of the self-identity and self-worth. I think that Hedwig, again, like I say, you can really apply this to the struggle and conflicts of adolescence. When you just sort of thinking about that, there's the three stages of his life or her life where the time that Hedwig spends after the operation with Luther in the caravan park, that's Hedwig's childhood, where Hedwig decides, I'm going to be this glam rock star and has all these temper tantrums trying to work out who she really is. That's adolescence and teenagehood. Mm -hmm. And then the very end of the film where Hedwig goes off into the night completely nude says this is who i am i'm showing myself to the world that's adulthood right absolutely it just really dawns on me you know after watching this a couple times the whole struggle of pulling to one level or the next level left or right that's the whole conflict of adolescence you know about desperately trying to determine where you belong i agree with you 100 percent. it's you know it's interesting as well you you know the kind of visual musical aesthetic which they go for with this the whole 70s glammy kind of thing that was a huge kind of thing for people of a certain age when they first saw that you know when Top of the Pops uh, right. Roxy G- music, Genie Slade. in, in yeah. 75 or whatever, you know, a whole generation of kind of prepubescent and pubescent children watching that, you know, that kind of set them on the course for the rest of their life. Absolutely. I wonder if that was a uh, conscious decision to do that. Absolutely. There are parallels there you can draw. Yeah. And I think they're intentional.
going into this, I'd read some stuff that this was going to be like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which after watching the film, I thought was a really lazy comparison. And then I got to thinking a little bit about the comparison between Frankenfurter and Hedwig, and especially, I guess, the song Midnight Radio in Hedwig and the Angry Inch maybe brought it home a little bit more to me about the comparison between the two films and that floor show scene, which, as much as I love Rocky Horror, that scene makes no sense. But it, it is a moment where Frankenfurter does wash off the makeup and he wants to be who he is. The rest of the film, he wants to be this one type of person. He wants to show like he rules the den and we find out that he's not the one who rules the den. Riff Raff really rules the den. He just wants to be loved. That's the moment where I sort of thought, okay, that's a slight comparison between Frankie and Hedwig. But uh, I, I think otherwise it was a bit of a lazy catch-all phrase to say that Rocky Horror and Hedwig are good companion pieces. be honest with you, Morris, I suspect most people who have made that comparison haven't even thought about it that deeply. I suspect most of them have made that comparison because they are similar aesthetically on a very right. surface level. I think what you're saying has merit, but I'm sure most of those comparisons are people just making an easy and uh, lazy comparison, like you say. And because it's just kind of like saying, well, Rocky's LGBT, Henry's right. LGBTQ, you know what I mean? Like, exactly, nah. yeah, yeah. It's just it's too easy, isn't it? We've been speaking a lot about the themes of the film. Just wanted to quickly before we give our final thoughts I just wanted to know what you guys thought about the look of the film I think Tim you went and mentioned that this is a film that looks like a stage production but on the other hand it does look still very cinematic in its approach well the reason when Tim asked for a one single word to sum up the film I said lipstick that kind of sums up the look and feel of the film it's very colorful it is very sort of theatrical looking but at the same time doesn't look like they've just transposed the theater sets and designs onto a soundstage you know it feels like the world has some depth there's something outside of what you're immediately seeing i think that the color palette of the film is all bright and garish when it needs to be and dark and grainy when it needs to be again it's the duality thing isn't it it's the light and the dark the costume design i think is fantastic it feels like everything has been thought out a lot of thought has been put into how things look how people look how people look in scenes and environments that they're in and also the other thing that we haven't mentioned which happens occasionally throughout the film but there are moments of animation and again those little animated segments they fit perfectly with the aesthetic of the film it all makes sense it's all high school yearbooks and scribbling in the margins and teenage angst and glam rock and all that mixed together and bubble gum and lipstick and so on and so forth which comes back to the earlier point about this being Hedwig's adolescence in general uh, yeah of course there is that scene where she's sort of doodling Tommy Gnosis in a notebook isn't right. exactly like a high school crush sort of doodle the gold light of your halo I wanna nail ya give you love and, and devotion I won't ever fail ya wanna run my mouth over your wounds Again, what Bernie was talking about, about the duality, East Berlin's like this kind of black hole. And then she get these transmissions of like Debbie Boone and Olivia Newton-John and all this stuff. And to me, when I first see Hedwig on stage, 
with the Berlin Wall costume and all that, in one part of my mind, I immediately just think ABBA. Right. I'm oh, sure, because yeah, it, yeah. Yeah, because it totally looks like Agatha. That's how you're supposed to look like, because if you're locked in a little hole, you're quarantined in East Berlin, and then you get aspects of the rest of the world about how you're supposed to look like. And then there's another part of the film where she's got the long blonde hair, and she's almost looking like Cher. Cher was a brunette. I know she's never a blonde, but there was points in the 70s where Cher used to dress almost like she was Native American and it just reminded me almost like a, like a Cher moment right like like there were so many points in this film where I you know I had this kind of deja vu where I'm like okay you know that's Debbie Boone and that's Stevie Nicks and that's so and so and she's kind of chasing again the identity and, and just saying well this is what people want or this is what America is all about from the 70s and 80s and whatever you know and even the 60s like she says you know I'm Miss Beehive hairdo like Bernie said the color scheme of this is all like cotton candy and dirt I don't remember whether it was a year ago or two years ago whenever we covered the uh, Oliver Stone film The Doors and at the time I think I was saying that one of the few redeeming features for me in the film were the concert sequences I think those absolutely undeniably great how Oliver Stone was able to recreate that i always sort of think that concert footage performance footage of any sort is an art unto itself and here in this film john cameron mitchell is working in a different space because normally when we think of a concert film we think of a an arena or a concert hall with thousands of people and in this film he's working with a band that plays like as if they're supposed to be playing to thousands of people but in fact they're maybe not even playing to 10 and i just love the look of those performance sequences are always big especially like on the harder rock songs like angry inch and tear me down he films it big but then there's the sensitive moment where you really do see that there's no one in the audience i think early on where hedwig is explaining how she started singing in public and she's singing it i think in that delicatessen you know i'd like to take it down a little right now what do you say girls huh this is actually the first song I've ever written. And it's written for a guy to sing. Now, I know a lot of you guys out there tonight. A lot better than some of you would care to admit. And I know that a few of you kick some karaoke ass. And you see the shot from behind Hedwig and the army major's wives looking at the audience. And there's like about three or four people there. You get to see that contrast. But I just love how John Cameron Mitchell treats those live performance sequences as a different way to tell the story. I haven't mentioned as much. We're coming back to your earlier point, Tim, about why these songs are so good in musicals in general. And I do love musicals. Well, maybe older musicals. But a lot of the time, the songs there are an explanation of why that character feels what they're feeling. And there was a point where a lot of people say they hate musicals. They say the story stops. In this film, the songs are the way to give you the backstory without yep. sort of having to have that exposition yep. In dialogue, Hedwig's couch therapy is telling her story to the right. audience by a song, and it's perfectly right. natural. That's the story. That's what sure. you're hearing. That's why these songs are so great. To add an element to what you're saying about big in a small space, there's a big difference too. Whereas, you know, in a film like The Doors, when they're shooting concert footage, all the audience wants to be there. But with Hedwig, all they're trying to do is eat their dinner. Yet, Hedwig's like, I'm fucking giving it to you whether you want it or not. 
Mm-hmm. We're coming full on. Either you take us on as an entree or you can nibble us as dessert, but we're still coming. And that's what I love about it is how he starts to build that little group of people, like the five that are sitting there wearing their styrofoam headwig wigs. And then the one guy there, he, sh- he shouts out, Frag! And then boom, and it's on. It just rolls out. And they still keep playing. And I love that. It shows the struggle. When you see all the shit with Tommy Gnosis, it just rings so false. He's playing this throngs of nothing. Whereas Hedwig, even though he's in a small space, he's still playing to people that either love him or absolutely loathe them. I love that. There's that moment where they transition, I think it was from Angry Inch, into the scene where we see Wig in a box and Hedwig jumps off the stage in sort of like a fantasy sequence. And you sort of wonder that final scene in the film or the final set of songs in the film where Hedwig has become the big star and Tommy Gnosis has fallen from grace. You wonder how much of that is fantasy and how much of that is real as well. And even walking out into the night completely stark naked as this is who I am, take it or leave it, is that still in his head? And I like the fact that it's not explicitly explained to us. You could argue that Tommy Gnosis isn't real. He's the flip side of her, isn't he? Maybe all the stuff with Tommy Gnosis is just stuff that is in her head anyway. I was watching the film with my daughter Amelia, who's seen this film at least a dozen times. I was thrilled to be able to watch it with her and get her perspective, and she said it was always my opinion that Tommy Gnosis never existed. I loved getting that perspective from her. You can kind of read it that the boy who becomes Tommy Gnosis, perhaps that happened, Mm. but perhaps Hedwig built the Tommy Gnosis character based on that relationship in her head and wrote those songs for him, or maybe he didn't exist at all. Hedwig and Tommy are in the car when he's talking about Cyrus. And then Hedwig's like, there's no god named Cyrus, it's Osiris. Wait, did you sing the Cyrus? No, no, the, you just sang the Cyrus on that recording. The Cyrus, Cyrus, the, Cy- the Cyrus the god. It's a, there's no god called Cyrus, it's Osiris, it's an Egyptian god. Remember we read that book? We, we had two versions of that song. We had one version no, of we had two versions And you fucked it up! And it's almost like saying, look, even if I do reach that level of fame, people are not going to see things the way that they really are. People are not going to really embrace the lyrics or embrace the concept the way that I've presented it. You can't control how people are going to acknowledge things. And I think that's a moment of awareness for Hedwig. Even if I want people to see me like this and even if I want people to see my art like this, there's no guarantee or there's no way to, to force people to take it like that. In the late mid-80s, I was in my early late 20s. I had just been dismissed from university after delivering a brilliant lecture on the aggressive influence of German philosophy on rock and roll entitled You Can't Always Get What You Want. All right, well, any final thoughts? Watch it, love it, buy it. I don't know why I, I haven't got around to this before. It's tremendous. I watched it and then I ordered the Blu-ray straight away. It's just wow. uh, fantastic. Well, that's immediately two wigs up from all of us. Heck uh, yes. i got to confess, I went into this episode a little bit nervous because as soon as I posted in the Facebook groups that we were covering this, this film is a lot of people's favourite film. And I thought, oh, okay, I hope that we can do this justice. With good reason, it must be a lot of people's favourite film. It must be 
out there because you know it's tremendous mm. i hope we did it justice we had a, an enjoyable conversation because this was bernie and my first time for this podcast watching this so we don't have the history that a lot of people do thank you so much tim for selecting this because this is one that i always knew about i thought yeah i must get around to that someday exactly the same but i think this film though not just standing as a musical film but i think this is a, a is a film that really educates it really helps people bring their guard down when they see this film like for example alice cooper today when you look at alice cooper who he was in the 70s like no one would ever imagine that you know like so many years later he'd be recognized as a christian who plays golf but yeah. that's still another side of alice cooper we don't peg people into categories I identify as this I identify as that and that's why I always tell people, and I'm not trying to be sarcastic or smartass, is that I identify as breathing, and I identify as loving and caring, and I hopefully try and identify as understanding. And so I, I think that this film is a real, an educational film for some that are willing to absorb what it's trying to lay down. It's a film with heart, I think. Oh, yeah, the bottom absolutely. Line. All right, well, that concludes our discussion of Hedwig and the Angry Inch. So we've basically sort of broken our hiatus cherry. We're back. Hope that you enjoyed it. Hope that you continue to subscribe to the show. What's happening next month? We'll be inviting our good friend Mike White from the Projection Booth podcast to join us. And we're going to be talking about a film which... In some ways, there's a lot of things to talk about, and in other ways, it's hard to talk about as a film because it's more of a jukebox than anything. But the film is the Jeff Stein documentary about The Who, The Kids Are All Right. I will say that this is my very, very favorite music-related film and one of my all-time favorite films, period. Looking forward to having Mike join us. I just will have to say one thing, though. Their drummer was rather boring. Carry this baggage out. He didn't do terribly much, did he? He didn't do much. No, no, no. I look forward to it. The kids are all right, and we're not talking about the film with Mark Ruffalo. We're talking about the film with Roger Daltrey, Pete Townsend, Keith Moon, and John Entwistle. That kids are all right. If you want to join our Facebook group, you can go to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here podcast. You can email us at see here podcast at gmail.com. And once again, Bernie. Instagram. We are at see here podcast. One word. And that's S-W-E-H-E-A-R cast. Follow us on Instagram and you'll be able to see the exciting pictures I post maybe two to three times a year. No, you mean two to three times <laughs> a month. You do post I mean, something for every episode. Two to three times an episode. Yeah, there we go. That would do. <laughs> just, so, uh, I'm just trying to find a picture now to post uh, wet people's whistle about the fact that we're back, you know. should post a photo of all three of us. No, I, I want people to actually listen. I don't want to turn them off, Morris. Until next month, be nice to each other. Listen to a great record. Watch a terrific film. Watch this film if you haven't already done so. And uh, we'll see you next month. All the best. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Goodbye, little one. All I've got to say.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 